If you want mealtimes to be easier and less stressful, getting your kids in the kitchen to cook is one of the best things you can do. I know it's really encouraged my kids to eat their vegetables and try new foods, and it's given them a ton of confidence in the kitchen. But if you don't know how to cook or you don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. This course was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, and it's designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. With Kids Cook Real Food, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists, and kid-friendly recipes like Tex-Mex white bean dip and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods, and become healthy, adventurous eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. I always want my kids to eat healthy, real foods, but as a busy working mom with two kids, I don't have a lot of time to shuttle from store to store. That's why I love Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable, and they quickly ship straight to your door. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. At Thrive Market, you can get organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. I love stocking up on Larabar, sunflower seed butter, and seaweed snacks, plus non-toxic cleaning and beauty products. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Getting more veggies on your kid's plate and serving healthy meals is great, but raising kids to have a healthy relationship with food is just as important. You can start this at a really young age, preschool age, or maybe even toddlers, where we ask them, how much room is in your belly? Do you want a little bit or a lot or something in between? That's Leanne Weintraub, a registered dietitian, nutritionist, nutrition expert, author, media consultant, and founder of FamilyMealsAndHeals.com. We're talking about how our own issues with food can affect how we feed our kids, 
how to talk about food, and how to model healthy habits for our kids. Hi, Leanne. Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. So let's talk about your story. You know, why did you become a registered dietitian nutritionist? And how do you work with clients? And what does your business look like today? Right, right. Yeah. So, you know, it, there's not there's not quite one thing that led me here. You know, looking back now, I see that being a child who was allergic to peanuts in a time where peanut allergies were not as common as they are today probably was the start of it all because that kind of turned me into a kid was who was a little bit more aware of food than other kids around me and just kind of made me more aware of what was in my food, needing to read food labels as a six-year-old or seven-year-old, asking what's in the snacks at birthday parties. And I think that was probably what started me out. But really when it came down to it, when I was in high school and college, I was just more of a science person, interested in working with people, interested in health and the human body. So it really led me into the field of food and nutrition very seamlessly. And, um, you know, I was lucky to be a college student who didn't change my major back and forth. I knew kind of going into school what I wanted to do and um, really have never looked back. I really enjoyed being a registered dietitian for the last uh, over 15 years now. And um, I'm a registered dietitian in private pet practice in Los Angeles. And I work with families and individuals with health and wellness concerns that, you know, where food and nutrition is a big part of their journey. And so I see myself as someone who can come in and help troubleshoot and problem solve and find solutions to everyday problems that relate to food and eating, uh, eating concerns. So let's talk about the most common issues that adults have around food and how that can really influence the way that we parent our kids. You know, I don't even know where to start. I can tell you what I see very often when working with adults. And we can also talk about work, you know, what I see when I work with children. But it's interesting to see that the adults I work with who struggle the most with their relationship with food, with uh, trusting their instincts with food with maybe feel like they're struggling with their weight, uh, were often kids who were put on diets as children, who their parents were dissatisfied with their own bodies constantly dieting, and where food was kind of seen as a struggle, something to like resist and avoid temptation versus something to nourish their body, something to bring the family together, something to, you know, create traditions around and spend time preparing meals together. Uh, There was this stress about food from a young age that they really take on into their adult years. So as parents and as a dietitian, um, I see like there's a really important role for us to help kids just trust themselves, feel good about food. And it really sets them up for a healthy relationship with food, good nutrition for their lifetime. Yeah. And what about emotional eating? I think so many of us from our generation of parents are emotional eaters and, and even more so today with all the stress that we have. Right. Emotional eating is is always a thing with adults. I think it's funny because kids tend to um, really look at food as like, you know, very naturally as nourishment. They eat when they're hungry. They stop when they're done. If they're not interested in food, you know, if they're not hungry, they're kind of, they want to go play. They're done at the table. But adults, we we reward ourselves with food. We eat when we're bored. We eat when we're happy. We eat when we're sad. We over and I don't know where it starts and exactly how it evolves, but I see in a lot of my clients who are you know teens and adults the emotional eating patterns, 
And it's, you know, a lot of it is over time, it becomes habits. You know, it's like coming home after a long commute and feeling stressed and, and instead of going to that healthy dinner, maybe going to the pantry and grabbing the quick snacks. Um, and so it's a lot of it is those ha- habits that come about from those emotions that we feel. So thinking about ways to cope with stress and emotion and ways to celebrate, you know, victories and successes or to deal with boredom outside of food. That's, you know, th- that can be really a struggle. But I think after this past year, year and a half with the pandemic, I'm seeing more emotional eating and stress eating than ever before. And some of it is in people who have actually already improved their stress, improved their emotions. They're in a better place. But now some of the, this eating or these eating habits are, they're just stuck with them. So they're trying to figure out how do I break these habits that maybe popped up during a more stressful time in my life? You know, so it's, it can be really complicated to get rid of some of these eating habits or tr- to improve them once they've, you know, become a part of the routine. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, I think that so much of food issues, if you will, are, are really rooted in childhood and they're more psychological than anything. You know, as a kid, I mean, I was, I, I've talked about this before, but I grew up Italian American family and the, you know, whether it was said it was, or it was implied, there was definitely this feeling that you had to eat everything on your plate. You had to eat You had to try what was put out, even if you weren't hungry. And typically, you know, Italian-Americans, they're loud, not to stereotype, but yeah, they are. I mean, they're loud, boisterous. There's lots of talking back and forth and people eat quickly. And I see what you're saying. I think it's hard to pull yourself out of those unhealthy habits. Um, But can that translate to our kids when, when we fall into those same patterns as adults? Right. I think the one that you just kind of mentioned that really stands out to me is this kind of clean plate club, eat everything on your plate where the parent, and this is, you know, this is definitely a way that a lot of us grew up where the parents put the food on the plate, you have to eat everything on your plate, and then you get dessert, that kind of reward, you know, eat your food, get the reward or eat the food in order to get up from the table. And ultimately that teaches kids, you cannot trust your own feeling of hunger. I can tell you what your body needs. And it leaves kids actually really confused and really lacking the trust they need to develop that healthy relationship to intuitively know when they're hungry and when they're full, how much they need. And um, it's really a disservice to kids. So there's definitely ways to help build that. Certainly like telling the child, you can eat whatever you want, you know, like have as much or as little as you want. I mean, we, we, they definitely do better with a little bit of structure, but sometimes it helps with small children. And you can start this at a really young age, preschool age, or maybe even toddlers, where we ask them, how much room is in your belly? Do you want a little bit or a lot or something in between? Show me like how, how hungry you are with your hands or with your arms. And that can really start the conversation for them to lead in a way when it comes to their hunger and fullness. Um, sometimes with my kids and their, their elementary school age, with their, they're ready to get up from the table and we're still eating. And I know I don't want them to be hungry in half an hour if they didn't eat enough because I know what can happen if they're distracted and they get up too soon. But instead of saying, finish all your food on your plate and then you can get up, I ask them, check in with your belly. Are you really done? What if, if you sat here for five more minutes, do you think you'd find some more room in your belly or are you, is it, are you really, really done eating? So that kind of, that's just that last minute check-in. And sometimes they take another bite or two, sometimes they don't. But really that's teaching them to to have some um, you know, some responsibility in it, knowing that this is their chance to eat. There might not be food a little bit later. And if they get up and they haven't had enough to eat, um, they have to take some responsibility for that too. Those are great ideas, Leanne. I feel like it really empowers your kids and it sets them up for a lifetime of 
of really that mindfulness and and they're empowered to take control of their own bodies and what they want, right? I think that's great. Right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to head to a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the messages that kids get, but, but more so from the outside world. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but I don't have a lot of time. So quick and simple options are a must. That's why I love the Vitamix. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years, and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last and come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. So Leanne, in addition to the influence from parents or the messages that kids may hear from parents, what are kids hearing from the world about food and their bodies? Because I know that with my own child, actually both of them, they've made comments about their bodies. And, um, and it's concerning to me because I, I really think I try never to say something about my body, whether positive or negative, really. Um, but I know they're probably hearing it from kids at school. Right, right. You know, I think it's probably happening a little bit younger in the girls. And I don't know if that, you know, the exact details of why maybe it's a little bit related to fashion and some of the role models they're seeing. Um, but what I've noticed is even sometimes they hear from their friends talks about talk about calories or um, what you know they'll see on social media or on YouTube or they'll talk to friends about uh, foods that are being advertised that are you know full of food dye and sugar and really not a whole lot of nutritional value. So it really depends on their age and the kids they're around, um, what kind of social media they're exposed to. But they are getting a lot of influence at a young age on related to body satisfaction, foods, you know, dieting. There's a lot of mixed messages that they can be getting from, I'd say, as early as probably five, six, seven years old. Um, And so we can continue to have dialogue on those things so they are not just hearing it from those other sources. And we can have open conversations if they say something about, oh, I'm not going to eat that because it has calories. We can explain to, you know, we can ask them, well, what is a calorie? Why are we not eating it? Because it has calories. You know, all the foods that are healthy have calories. You know, let's, what did, what did your friend tell you a calorie is? It's, it's a, it's a unit of measurement of energy. So calories are not bad They're You know, I, I think calories are really important for you to fuel your body. You know what? I'm curious what you know about the calories. So it's, we can kind of take some of the, um, stigma or emotion out of some of the things that come across as, as maybe negative related to food and bodies. And we can also have conversations if they're seeing foods that are, have very little nutritional value on social media or in their friends' lunchboxes. We can talk about why, you know, it's, you know, it's okay if other families choose to have those foods, but we don't buy those foods because we don't think that's the best food 
for you. And this isn't necessarily a message against, you know, all things in moderation, because certainly a lot of foods that are not the highest nutritional value can fit into a balanced diet. But there might be some foods that I prefer not to purchase my children because I just don't stand behind those foods. And if they happen to eat them at a birthday party or if grandma wants to buy them, I'm not going to jump in the way. But I might say, you know what? Their parents might buy them. I choose not to. And I get to, you know, as the mom, I'm in charge of what, what, what comes into our house. Right. Just like anything else, right? You know, mm-hmm. they're allowed to watch this movie, but you're not. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. 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 And yeah. I think also just the way that we talk about, especially as moms, the way we talk about our own bodies is so important. So even the slightest little comment, your kid can really take it to heart. So you never want to say really anything about your body other than maybe, you know, my body serves me in in ways like it it allowed me to give birth to you or, you know, I when I eat healthy, my body is strong and I can work out and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Studies show that children, particularly girls, when they pick up on their mother's body dissatisfaction, that they are more likely to be dissatisfied with their own bodies. So the way we talk, especially as moms, has a huge impact. I mean, of course, it makes sense, but we can see that in the research. It has a huge impact on how they see themselves and that I think as they get older will lead to, uh, you know, the relationship with food, potential dieting, um, potential body image issues. So, you know, I really like kind of avoiding those conversations about bodies and talking more like how you did about strength, about being able to be active, about you know, having a healthy snack now so we can go on a hike and hike a little bit longer, hydration. It's it's really about, you know, it's about fueling the body. It's about getting the the nutrients that we need. It's about, and for them, it's about growth, right? I mean, as adults, we're done growing, but for kids, they the nutrition's even more important for them because they are still growing. Their brains are still growing. They're still learning so much. So, um, you know, anything we can do to kind of keep the the conversation about bodies neutral neutral to positive. Yeah, definitely. So I know you've written a lot about how to raise kids who have a healthy relationship with food. And so what's the difference between, you know, raising healthy eaters and feeding our kids healthy? Because so much of the focus on on content that we are bombarded with is is about nutrition and feeding kids and recipes and sneaking and bribing and all of it. But um, between, you know, really raising healthy eaters, feeding kids, and then raising them to have a healthy relationship with food, because I think the two are really distinctly different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's funny because I wonder if your audience is like, well, those sound like the same things to me. But the the way I see it is like we can feed our children healthy, healthy meals, offer them good options, and that's going to make them have a healthy diet, at least when they're at home in our house and around us. But teaching our children to have this kind of long term healthy relationship with food or to set them up for for being a healthy eater once they're grown and out of the house. I would say if there was like a number one thing I'd point out, it's teaching them kitchen skills and how to cook. What else can help a child be a better, you know, have a better relationship with food and being more empowered with food than teaching them to be able to be active in the kitchen? And I can't tell you how many young adults I work with that are that really lack that skill and really feel like a lack of confidence in the kitchen. They don't feel comfortable using a can opener. They don't feel comfortable making a salad dressing or cooking fish or um, dealing with basic, you know, basic ingredients and flavors and seasonings. And so when we can teach kids to help us in the kitchen with age appropriate activities and they, as they get older, they can take on more and more. um, This is just really huge for empowering them, for building their confidence, 
And for, you know, by the time that they're in high school or leaving for college, um, you know, maybe, you know, eventually having a family of their own, they, they, they have those abilities. Um, because really, if we don't teach them and they don't maybe have like a strong interest where they might go out on their own and take cooking classes or work in a restaurant, uh, for example, that's just something that's not going to passively be, you know, picked up over time. Yeah. And so getting them in the kitchen, can that really kind of help you almost prevent them becoming adults who, you know, look to food as, as have more power than just food itself? Yeah. Well, I think what we're doing is we're teaching them to be self-sufficient with food. So not relying on as much, you know, convenience items, though those definitely have their role in a busy, a busy household, but being able to make make their own meals, make their own food items, um, not rely on restaurants to do all of that for them. And, and and we know that when we cook at home, we we end up eating healthier, we get more nutritious, balanced meals. So just they it gives them the opportunity to have that control, to have the, that comfort with taking care of food on their own and not having to outsource that to food companies, to restaurants, to delivery services. Um, and really, I think that there's there's almost like a step further where it's like teaching them to enjoy it, to be able to prepare a meal and sit down and enjoy it and know the ingredients and um, know how to make things taste delicious and to be able to share that with others. There's um, there's a lot of kind of cultural and social aspects to that that are not just about nutrition, right? It's, you know, food is something that can also just be an enjoyable thing to do. And when we're, we enjoy food and when we're mindful about it, um, it really just builds that healthy relationship and makes it so food is not taboo and off limits and something to feel guilty about. Um, it just creates a more balanced relationship with eating and with with the food in, in their lives. That's great. And for people listening, you know, it, it doesn't have to be this big, you know, five course meal. You can just literally get a very easy recipe, make a snack to start out with, make a muffin, something like that, and then move on to more you know, more complex uh, recipes. Yeah, I think w- what we really started out with, I mean, when they're really little, it's things like you already have everything in the bowl and you just give them a spoon and like you you let them mix it. Or, you know, it can be very basic. You can try to keep it from getting too messy because with toddlers and preschool age kids, it can definitely get a little messy. And sometimes the help is certainly not helpful at all. But as they get a little bit older, um, you know, teaching them to do things like make scrambled eggs, use a toaster, use the microwave, um, my kids are pretty savvy in making like a, a salad dressing and doing some basic chopping on ingredients. We've worked on knife skills. Um, there's, you know, there's certain things that they don't do or that they do with like only supervision, but you can kind of build like, you know, working on one ingredient at a time with, for example, with scrambling eggs, you know, teaching them how to crack the eggs. There's going to be a few mess ups before they get it down and then teaching them like, you know, how to stir the eggs and what might go into the eggs. And you're going to all of a sudden have a, a, a child who can, you know, from start to finish, make scrambled eggs, you know, and of course, using the stove, depending on the child and their age and everything like that, you're going to want to still maybe supervise the the use of the stovetop. But they're they're going to be much more competent at a younger age than you would expect if you start with those small skills and build up as they um, as they progress. Yeah, absolutely. So Leanne, let's talk about the ways that we can raise kids to have a healthy relationship with food. I mean, I have so many different thoughts on this topic. I mean, I think that the way that we talk about food is really important. So avoiding major labels like bad foods and good foods or healthy and unhealthy. Um, 
certainly like we can talk about foods in like descriptive terms, like this food is crunchy. This food is blue. This food is green. This food is, you know, it, I like it better when it's cooked. Well, I actually like it better when it's not cooked, you know, like ways to kind of have opinions about foods that are specific to the preparation, the, the flavor, the texture. Um, and so it's not, we're not just putting foods in boxes or, you know, there might be some foods that we don't see as, as parents that we don't see as the most healthful foods, but we aren't going to, I guess what my advice would be is not to feed your child a food that you don't want them to eat that often and be like, this food is not healthy for you. Because that sends a, a kind of a confusing signal. Like, well, my mom just got me an ice cream cone, but now she's telling me that this is junk food. So is that <laughs> right. a good thing or a bad thing? So I think it's okay, oh, it's okay to say something like, you know, we don't get ice cream every day. Like, you know, like if, you know, if, if we have ice cream tonight and tomorrow night, they're like, let's get ice cream. Well, you know, we had ice cream last night. Like maybe we'll get it again next week. So we can kind of set an expectation of like, there's some foods we eat every day and there's some foods we might eat a little bit less often than that. And there's some foods that we, um, you know, we might kind of have say for more of a special occasion. Um, but I think that when we feed our children a food and say, this is not good for you, it just is, it's just confusing and it sends mixed messages. Um, so I really prefer talking about foods in descriptive terms in terms of, you know, this is an everyday food. This is a food that's a, like a celebratory food. Um, it's, it's okay for kids to not like foods, but we, you know, in my house, we talk about like, that's kind of rude. Like if you don't like something and then you tell everyone in the room, you don't like it, that's just, that's not really good manners. Should we talk to our kids about food as nourishment and how it's really important for how we feel and our fatigue and, you know, how we're able to like perform in soccer? Yeah. I, well, I think, you know, I think that actually really depends on the kid, right? So there's some kids that are like not great eaters and we can't get them to sit down and we just want them to like have a few bites of something so we can talk about. And with a child like that, we might say, you know, like you need you know energy for your brain at school. You need energy for swimming lessons. If you don't eat anything, you're going to get tired in the pool and want to take a nap. So I think that makes sense for some kids, but there's some kids, they're like really into sweet stuff. They have that palate where they just want the fruit and the candy and the the maple syrup on everything. And they're just really interested in maybe one category or one food group. So it's not so much that we're asking them to eat more, but we want them to expand their palate to go for more colors and more textures and uh, something a little sour or bitter or savory. And so that's when we talk about like, how to, you know, try this, see how it tastes. It doesn't taste sweet. It's a little, well, mom, it's a little sweet. Well, you're right. It's a little sweet, but I taste tart. And they're like, oh, is that, that, that's tart. So we can kind of get them to think about other flavors, other textures outside of maybe their comfort zone. So I guess my thought is really about like thinking about your kid and what they need and then using language that's going to help them expand their palate, be open to more variety. And uh, and that's the kind of thing I work with my clients um, in my practice is, you know, it's it's certainly not like a one size fits all with each family or with each kid. We're looking at what are the goals. And then we come up with different solutions and strategies to reach those goals. So I think with a lot of parents, what I see is that they are concerned that their kids are not eating enough or they're not eating enough of the right food. Or like you said, there's a power struggle. And so that language can be really helpful and really important to avoid that power struggle and to engage them on their level on, uh, in a way that's going to help them be open-minded to trying additional foods that are maybe what they normally wouldn't enjoy or that's, you know, to tr try to kind of diversify the, the options on their plate. 
That's great. And you talked before about mindfulness. Do you think that parents should kind of follow that mindfulness, intuitive eating approach? Yeah. Well, when it comes to mindfulness is just something we can all do. We can do with ourselves and our children. And that's things like turning the TV off during meals. You know, know, one in three children will report eating many dinners a week in front of a screen of some sort, a television uh, in an iPad or something like that. And, and even though that's not, that's not the end of the world, but that also decreases from the mindfulness. So certainly it's better to have a family meal in front of the TV than to have your child eating alone. Like having those family meals where everyone's together um, adds a lot of value. It tends to improve the, nu- the, the nutrition of the meal, the overall nutrition that kids are getting when they're eating together with families, even if it's in front of a screen. But a screen takes away from the mindfulness. We tend to not be as able to check in with our bodies, to notice if we've had enough to eat. We just don't register that we're eating when we're eating in front of a screen. So getting rid of the screens, reducing screen time while eating is really important for increasing mindfulness. Um, I think what we talked about with like discussing the taste and the texture and the flavor of the food um, and our feelings of fullness and hunger while eating kind of in a light manner does also increase the mindfulness. Some parents tell me like, oh, my child always asks for seconds and I try to tell them to slow down and like, They seem to be getting too much and I'm just not sure if, you know, they're overeating or not. You know, when we talk and have like a light conversation during a meal and check in with our bodies during the meal, that's teaching our children to be more mindful so that, you know, especially if they are quick eaters, they have a chance to kind of register that they've maybe had enough to eat and they don't necessarily need to go back and and have seconds or they can kind of slow down a little bit and and really kind of enjoy the meal. Um, So their body and their mind are more connected, right, when it comes to comes to like enjoying and digesting their food. Um, also eating off of a plate. How many times, even as adults, do we catch ourselves eating out of a package, eating something over the kitchen sink, in a rush, on the phone? And so anytime that we can, you know, plate it, sit down, enjoy it off of, you know, while kind of trying to not multitask, we're just being more mindful eaters. And our kids pick up on that. When our children see us, you know, eating, standing in, by, you know, by you know the edge of the kitchen, standing on the phone, eating our lunch, they kind of see as a meal as something to kind of get through quickly versus something to sit down and enjoy. So anything we can do to enjoy our meal, to slow down, to be more in the, you know, in the present moment while eating is going to be a a way to be a more mindful eater. And so I think intuitive eating certainly goes into that. It's all very much connected. And, you know, I think we could probably have a whole different talk on intuitive eating. And there's some, certainly some of my dietitian colleagues who really focus on intuitive eating in their practice. And so, um, you know, certainly we want our children to be intuitive eaters, to be mindful eaters and to have a a healthy relationship with food. And they want to trust, we want them to trust their bodies when it comes to, you know, their understanding of, you know, when it's time to eat and when it's time to stop eating. Yeah, that's great. We actually devoted a whole episode to intuitive eating with Dr. Yami. So I'll post that in the show notes, but what about talking about, you know, Every food is okay in moderation. Do you think that's okay to tell a kid? You know, there's that's like a very common message. You know, I don't find myself talking with my own children a whole lot about mo- the term moderation. I think there's that is a great message, but I think that it's something more that you can practice and they pick up on it. Like telling someone to eat in moderation, what does that even mean? So I right. think it's a it's a little bit about that conversation about those descriptor terms when it comes to the food about, you know, not you know, not telling our children that something that we're giving them is bad or something that they want is, you know, horrible and they can never have it. And also 
um, you know, thinking about, you know, like even like healthier foods that they, we want them to eat a lot of. We don't want them to feel like those are the only like I can only eat broccoli. It's the only healthy food. Like you're absolutely right. Like moderation is important message, but I think we can really teach it by practicing it. I think it's really hard to like have a sit down conversation about like eating in moderation, um, but we can show them moderation by, you know, giving ourselves reasonable portions, eating a variety of foods from all the food groups, enjoying foods that might be seen more as a treat while um, talking like in a very positive way about foods that we want them to enjoy. Like, I really love this broccoli. We want them to enjoy vegetables. We should really demonstrate um, our, you know, our positive feelings about those vegetables. I often see people in my practice who don't like, let's say, for example, seafood. And oftentimes they're like, oh, my whole family doesn't like seafood. So I know somewhere in there, there was some negative talk about seafood and it just kind of became like a taboo food in that household. So I, you know, I look at it as, you know, with with kids, we're not just wanting to have them to eat in a moderate way and, and, and feel like all foods can fit, but we want them to be open to trying new foods. So I think that that's kind of a part of that same conversation for a, a lot of parents with kids who just aren't as adventurous when it comes to, you know, trying all the different foods and all the different food groups. Wow, these are all great ideas. So Leanne, we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about rewards, food rewards. If you have picky eaters, you're not alone. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. But through the years, as both a journalist and a mom, I've discovered the secrets to raising kids who love their veggies and will eat just about anything. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free ebook, 15 Secrets to Raise Healthy Eaters and Put an End to Picky Eating. This book is filled with evidence-based real-life strategies that will help you raise healthy eaters without sneaking foods, bribing, negotiating, or making food into art projects. To get the book, just go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So Leanne, you know, I think we all know we shouldn't do it, but I think most of us from, you know, whether it happens all the time or from time to time, we definitely give our kids food rewards. And and it's also kind of what society teaches our kids, right? I mean, in school, they oftentimes get candy. At church, they get candy. Right. They, you know, we celebrate after a great game. There's some sort of food involved. But how do we kind of get ourselves out of this reward system? And, and maybe even some parents, you know, withholding food maybe or using food as punishment in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so it's so hard because it would be so easy to just say, you know, listen to me and I'll give you a treat, right? Like we want we want their we want them to listen to us. We want good behavior and food is this kind of it's an easy and it's an easy reward to offer, but we have to try to kind of break that cycle, right? We know that when we have a food reward, it puts that food on a pedestal. So if we're offering cake, all of a sudden cake is better than dinner because, you know, if they do something good, they get the cake. So why would I even want my dinner if I could have cake? So we're, ha- you know, we're kind of making this one food have a higher value as a reward. We're kind of signaling this is what you should want and that's why it's it's special and and so it's kind of, it's kind of almost in the long term, it can kind of work against us and it can work against them. So certainly having other rewards, right? Like we can offer one-on-one time with parents. Like how many, how often does your, your child get to like choose whatever, what, whatever activity they want to do together with one of their parents right after dinner? That would be a great reward because sometimes evening times are rushed. The parents are busy, kids have homework. And so if, you know, if the mom or dad's like, 
hey, you know, I will sit down and watch, you know, your favorite show with you tonight if if you, you know, finish your homework before dinner, whatever that kind of reward is, instead of saying you're going to get dessert at dinner if you finish your homework. So we can offer our time and our attention. We can offer non-food rewards. Like maybe there's a, 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 a behavior chart or an activity chart where if they do, you know, their, their chores or they have those good behaviors, then they get a, a non-food reward, whatever that may be, some sort of something that they look forward to or that they earn. Um, so there's certainly a lot of like non-food rewards we can offer. We can offer other activities that we do with them or that they get to do maybe on the weekends. Um, but I think it's a, it takes a little bit of practice, right? Like breaking that cycle of using the food as a reward, trying to keep, again, remember the goal is to try to keep food non-emotional, neutral, try to make it just kind of like something that's happening in the background to fuel their body, something we enjoy together as a family, something that, you know, is a, attached to holidays and social gatherings, but it's not about being good or bad. And the, they're, they're, they don't get or not get food because of how they act or what they do or, not, or what they don't do. Um, and and I think that sometimes we find once we start offering those non-food rewards to our children, then we realize all the time we're offering food rewards to ourselves. Oh, get through the long day, get through that deadline. You get this this kind of food or drink for a treat. So we start to notice, okay, maybe I need to practice what I preach and offer myself my own non-food rewards, right? Something to look forward to that's not really related to something edible. Yeah. And I think one of the most detrimental things that we can do to our kids is negotiating or bribing or nagging them to eat, right? Right. Right. I think that that just sets up for a power struggle, right? Once it's it's that kind of conversation of like you have to finish your food or we're not going unless you finish eating or hurry up and eat or slow down and, you know, eat slower. It just becomes this this kind of push and pull between the adults and the kids. And so you know, I really find that talking about other things besides food during the meal, really trying to like talk about, you know, once you kind of get into that conversation, here's dinner, you know, like, how's it taste? How was your day? And then you move on to the next thing. What's, you know, what's going on tomorrow at school? Who's, who did you play with on the playground? It, the conversation kind of just sail right, right away from the food into like maybe topics that they're interested in talking about, just depending on their own personalities. Yeah. And, and as I was preparing for this interview with you, I was reading through some some articles. And one of the things that really popped out at me was don't compliment your kids on eating all of their vegetables or eating more than they normally do. And I think, right, so many parents probably fall That's into that one. category, like, right, like, good job for eating. But what does that really teach them? Right, right. Well, and also, like, it kind of sets this 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 standard of like, okay, wait, am I supposed to eat that much? Is that what mom wants me to eat? Or what, you know, do I normally eat too much? And she's glad that I, that I didn't eat more. Like they're trying to follow our lead and then we're sending this kind of confusing lead. So I think that, you know, we can reward them or we can kind of um, give them positive feedback on taking their dish to the sink, helping clean up, clean up after eating, uh, you know, helping set the table. Those are the things we can, um, you know, give them positive reinforcement on. Yeah, that's great. And finally, you know, I, I'm a big advocate for sharing family meals. And again, it doesn't have to be dinner necessarily, but what does research show about the importance, the benefits of sharing family meals and how they can really foster a healthy relationship with food? Gosh, it's, it's, I don't even know like one other thing that we could do. That's like such a, a basic day-to-day activity that has such a huge impact on kids and teens. Um, everything from academic success, 
um, better mental health. The, the obvious, uh, certainly a, an obvious one is that kids who have family meals are more likely to get a more nutritious, balanced diet. Um, it, it just plays out into everything from like graduation rates, rates of depression, grades, uh, getting into, um, you know, advanced education. I mean, there's just so much payoff when it comes to, to family meals. Uh, and I think really because it fosters, it helps foster those, those conversations that kids have that kind of give them a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, helps them learn to, you know, regulate themselves during conversations. Um, they're getting, you know, instead of having maybe, um, you know, like snacks in front of the TV on their own, they're, ha- they're sitting down and having, you know, foods from all the different food groups, something, you know, some water or something healthy to drink. And they're, they're a part of something, right? They're, it's a time that they're, they're kind of engaging in this social dynamic that they're learning from. So it's, um, there's just so much payoff to family meals and they don't have to happen every day to be impactful. And like you said, they don't have to necessarily be at dinner time. I, I speak with a lot of the families I work with where, you know, dinner's really a busy time. There's homework, there's multiple children in the family, parents work late, there's maybe um, a babysitter who's helping in the evening and just everyone's eating at different times. So family meals can be focused on weekends or it could be breakfast in the morning. It doesn't have to always be dinner time. Um, but, you know, even just having like a, a Sunday family dinner night where everyone gets together and has dinner and really enjoys that time together can be something that kids um, as they grow up, they look back on and they really see that that was a part of their their growth as an individual was having that connection with their family, even if it was just that one day out of the week. That's great. Well, Leanne, you gave us so many tips here. There's so much to go through. This is really great. But let me know, where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Sure. Yeah. So my uh, my blog where I post um, uh, recipes for busy families is Family Meals and Heels. So that's heels, H-E-E-L-S.com. And I'm on Instagram at Leanne S. Weintraub. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Leanne. Thank you. I really enjoyed that interview with Leanne and all of her amazing tips for having conversations with your kids about food. If you found this episode helpful, I'd love it if you could go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 